From the foot of Mount Sinai, the children of Israel saw the presence of God descend upon the mountain in fire and smoke. In the shadow of that awesome display of God's glory, Moses received the Torah and the commandments, the foundation of all scripture. God took the nation of Israel as his bride and made a covenant with them. He promised if they obeyed his commandments, he would pour out physical and spiritual blessings upon them. But if they rebelled and disobeyed, they would experience hardships, judgment, and curses. However, even though they might rebel and suffer the consequences, God pledged never to forsake them on account of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is a faithful God. At Sinai, the holiness of God was poured out before the people. If we want to follow a holy God, we ourselves must be consecrated and holy. This was the reality. God is absolutely holy and righteous. The commandments were never meant to save, but to instruct and reveal the need for a mighty Savior to rescue his people, Israel, and us. Faith without works is dead, as James declares, and God desires obedience through righteous action, which is reflected in our hearts. We must hold on to him, for he is mighty to deliver and save. Moses understood this. The heroes of the Old Testament lived out their faith. Do we? Do we understand the holiness of God? What does it mean to be totally sold out for God, yet tremble with holy fear? Here's Rev. Peter J. Fast of Bridges for Peace Canada with part three of our series on the covenant. Absolutely. Well, it is lovely to be back here, and maybe you can just play the previous one, and I just can sit there and listen to myself. Um, no, it is a privilege to be back here. Uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying this. It's a blessing, your support and love. And uh, yes, I am uh, Peter Fast. I'm the Deputy National Director with Bridges for Peace Canada. Uh, the national office is located right here in, in Winnipeg, this glorious city. But we're a global organization in eight nations with our international office located in Jerusalem. And since 1976, really, our ministry and our calling has been to bridge that gap between Christians and Jews, between the church and the synagogue. So we're a reconciliation ministry. We really are. Uh, we're bridging that gap with showing unconditional Christ-like love um, and bridging the gap of mistrust and suspicion and fear that exists between the two. You know, Christians think we know about Jews and Jews think they know about Christians and we miss, uh, kind of our, our wires get crossed and we miss each other so often and so we're reaching out, and we do that with many different programs and building relationships, but a number of our programs, are, are our flagship is feeding and providing food. So we feed over 22,000 needy Israelis every month. We have school programs with 400 children on those school programs that receive food and dental insurance and um, school supplies. We help Holocaust survivors. We repair homes. We do all kinds of incredible things, as well as we've helped almost 60,000 Jews make Aliyah, return to the land, many of them uh, escaping nations where there's extreme levels of anti-Semitism, the hatred of Jews, and violence on them being singled out as Jews. And so it really is a, quite an incredible thing that for most history, the church has been so silent on so many of these issues and, and kind of standoffish, not wanting to interact. And in the last you know, decades, we have just a real turnaround. God's working in the church and, and a lot of genuine Christians showing unconditional love and reaching out. And we're, getting to see, we're starting to see that on the other side. So it really is incredible. 
And I've been connected with Bridges for Peace for quite um, some time and working full time uh, with them for six years. So it is my uh, privilege to be here. I, I preach a lot, but it is uh, wonderful to be here to preach this series on covenant. Um, if you recall, going back two weeks ago, the first, uh, first Sunday, it was covenant and the word chesed, steadfast love, which is the fabric or the, you know, the, the meat and potatoes of covenant, relationship, unconditional love, and undeserved, which is why God establishes covenant in the first place. Last week, we looked at Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, and his faith. Abraham's faith, he was, he was saved by his faith, and that was credited to him as righteousness. And then God established this incredible covenant with Abraham that had two sides to it. One, he was going to have physical descendants that were going to be blessed forever, and there was, land was attached to that. And, this, and Abraham was given the sign of, co- of covenant of, of circumcision and land and the promised son, and we know from, right from that seed comes the Messiah. But the other side of that blessing was through that blessing and through that reality, God would bless the whole world. And indeed, he has. When you have, where the gospel has gone, the, the, the faith of Abraham has gone, and we are uh, children, we are sons and daughters uh, adopted sons and daughters of, in faith with Abraham, and we look to him as a model of faith. So God is faithful, and he's upholding that. And today we're going to look at um, God's holiness and the, the Mosaic Covenant. Now for any of you that when I got up here, you kind of rolled your eyes, oh, there's Peter again. He's talking about covenant. He's up there the third time. Like, how long is this going to go? Um, I decided to come up with a good joke to break the ice here. Um, it relates directly, it's a very serious joke, it relates directly to the Mosaic Covenant and Moses. So Moses, he's old. We all know that, okay? When he climbs up that mountain, he has a big long beard. He climbs up there. He's up there for 40 days, 40 nights. He's fasting. He's in the presence of God. And he receives the commandments. And those commandments are heavy. You know, they're like carved into big, perfectly shaped stone tablets. And he's, and he's carrying them down. And, he, and they're so heavy. And he gets before the children of Israel and he's trying to lift them up, and he says, the Lord God has given me 15, 10 commandments, 10 commandments, so we don't know where the other five have gone. You know, I was expecting a little bit more laughter there. Should I do it again? Um, no. So, but there, there's a little icebreaker there. So, we're going to look at, first of all, holiness, kadosh, and that's this Hebrew word, because God's holiness is connected with the Mosaic Covenant. Now, Kadosh means what is sacred or what is holy, but it conveys absolute. There's nothing, it, it, nothing wavers from this. This is, and I, you know, and I think we, we use that word holy, holy, holy uh, often. We encounter it all over, hundreds of times in the scriptures, but do we really come to gra- can we really come to grasp what that is? We strive for holiness, but it is absolute. It doesn't de- deviate or diminish. Nothing deviates from this word. This is like fear and trembling. When we encounter, we as humans encounter this. This is the core makeup of who God is. This is his fabric and DNA. And perhaps it can be said that the reality of his holiness therefore impacts everything else of who he is. Everything. He's not just righteous. He's not just showing mercy at times. He is always righteous. He's always merciful. He's a creator and he is a guide. He is a healer. He imparts perfect revelation and he's all powerful. But all of that hinges on he is absolutely holy. And therefore, all of these characteristics of who he is, nothing is violated. Nothing wavers one bit. He is the perfect law giver. 
just as much as he is the perfect law keeper. And because of that perfection, that is what he demands from us. Now, hold a minute. Like, this is, this is terrible news without Jesus. This is absolutely terrible news because we're all lawbreakers. But that is why we need Jesus, because he mediates. And that blood covers that. And he says, you are mine. Even though we are lawbreakers, he has redeemed us. And so, but this is what holiness is to God. So this holy God called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then he called Moses, and he set free captive Israel. He's faithful. He brought them out of Egypt with a mighty outstretched arm. Meanwhile, he destroyed the memory, the reputation of the false gods of Egypt, and he humbled Pharaoh. He said, I alone am God, not you, Pharaoh, and not all any of your false gods, because I am absolutely holy. So when we look at this, here's a, good, here's a, a photo taken 4,000 years ago of Moses. You can see it up there on the screen. This is an exact image of Moses. Looks a little bit like Charlton Heston, but it is Moses. Um, the outcome of Sinai. What, what happened? When, when many Christians think of Sinai, they think of dry legalistic law. Many, many Christians have a wrong view of what happened and the purpose of law due to the overall emphasis of grace. So law, in many Christians' minds, is this kind of bad thing or devalued or it's kind of done away with. Now, do not hear me wrong. I am not saying we are saved by any other means other than grace. We are not saved by our works. Uh, it does not say Abraham was, by his works, Abraham's faith or was credited, or by his works was credited as righteousness. He was saved by his faith. That is grace. However, there's a lot more that happened at Sinai that directly impacts us. Sinai wasn't just law. Sinai was revelation. Sinai changed everything. And through this, we need to recognize the esteemed position and purpose of the law. Why? Why the law? So, last week we looked at Abraham, this royal grant treaty. Remember the, the great king who entrusts his faithful vassal with land, unconditional, just because it's unconditional love and unconditional intent. Well, this, the Mosaic Covenant is based off of another ancient covenant called the Suzerain Vassal Treaty. This was an ancient Hittite treaty that the children of Israel would have been very aware of. And so in the Suzerain Vassal Treaty, what it was, was a great king. He goes to his faithful vassal and he says, faithful vassal, I want to protect my interests. And so therefore, I'm going to make a pact or a treaty with you to protect my interests. If you do... If you protect my interests, I will bless you. If you don't, well, then you're going to be punished or cursed. And this is what we see. We see also in archaeology, there was a, a Caesarean vassal treaty made between a King Marcellus and Dupi Tesub of Amaru. I love that name. Maybe if I have a, another son, if we have another child, I'll name him Dupi Tesub. I have, don't spoil it. Don't tell my wife. Maybe I'll just proclaim his name as Dupi Tesub. I will not. Um, but, but King Marcellus says to Dupi Tesub, he says... You know, if you obey me, if you, if you uh, look after my lands and all of these things, boy, the gods are going to bless you and your family and your nation, your country. But, Dupitesib, if you're slack, if you disregard these things, well, then may the gods all curse you and your family and all of this. Okay, so God takes what is known. The Israelites would have known about this. They would have heard about it. And perhaps they would have seen it in different ways. But he takes what they've known and he perfects it and he applies it to himself. He is the only God the true God, and he basically establishes this covenant with them through his holiness. That is his interests. His interests are his holiness here. He is the great king. 
And Israel is this vassal, and he says he takes a people for himself, he transforms them into a nation that will reflect and represent him and guard his interests. Blessings and curses. If you obey me, if you love me, if you honor me, boy, your women will have children. There will never be famine. It will always rain on your land. I'll keep your enemies away. Those are the blessings. If you don't, boy, if you take foreign wives and worship other idols and, or idols and all of these things, well, then there will be famine. You won't have children. There will be sickness. Armies will come and attack you. And ultimately, if you keep doing this, you will go out on exile. So these are the blessings and the curses. And the Israel was not tricked when we look in Exodus 19. Moses hears from God. Moses goes and takes the conditions of the Suzerain Vassal Treaty to the elders and tells them. And the elders say, we will do all the Lord commands. They agree to this. That's the people's response. So, there's two amazing parallels with Mount Sinai and Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost? You may be asking yourself, what was it? What is it? How on earth could these two be connected? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the giving of the Torah. Well, Pentecost is the Hebrew word is Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. And during the year, you have Torah portion readings, okay? So the Jewish people, they take the first five books and they divide it into, into sections. So every week, they're reading a portion. And during Shavuot, or Pentecost, the portion that they're reading and studying is the revelation at Mount Sinai. Okay? They're reading about the revelation of Mount Sinai. What happened at Mount Sinai? Fire and wind and the word at the base of the mountain. And the people trembled. The people were in awe. Pair that to Shavuot or Pentecost in Acts 2. In Acts 2, we find the synagogues have just emptied. Thousands of Jews have left the synagogues just after reading about the revelation at Sinai. They're going up to the temple, up a mountain to the temple to worship. But at the base of the mountain of the temple, they hear Peter give a word, a mighty word. And then they experience the glory of God in fire and smoke, wind. And their minds got to be going back to Torah, the Sinai revelation, this connection, this incredible connection. And in both cases, there's a verbal declaration. This is God revealing himself to people. So there's a direct connection between what we know as Pentecost, and today's Pentecost Sunday, Shavuot we just passed, and Mount Sinai. There's this connection. But we also see God as a groom at Mount Sinai. You may have not have considered this. He gives the conditions of marriage. In a Jewish wedding, they would issue a ketubah, or a contract, that would be written up that the bride would then agree to, to enter into marriage. So God gives them a marriage contract. I mean, he calls Israel his bride, his beloved. He gives them a marriage contract, and Israel gives a verbal acceptance of that. So the vow, which is given in Egypt, 50 days later, there's the marriage at the base of this mountain of Sinai, and the people become a nation. So there's an amazing connection here. Now, I've said this word, Torah. What does Torah mean? And it doesn't just mean law. A lot of people, that'll be their first reaction, or their first answer, law. Well, Torah means so much more than that. It means revelation, first of all. It means instruction, and it also means law, but it can mean the entire revelation of Scripture as well. So it has multiple meanings, but a root that is found in the concept of Torah is being exactly on target. That's where we want to be. So it's shooting an arrow at a target. When you think of Torah, it's like shooting an arrow at a target. This is a guide. This helps. And it's most often referred to as the five books of Moses, 
of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, or the Book of the Law, or the Pentateuch. There's different uh, descriptions of this. And yet, when we think of law, only 20% of the, uh, of the five books is actual legal law. So it, to, to just stereotype and call it all law is like calling Canada Toronto. So it's, you know, it's, it, it is more than just law. And even the law has something to reveal, and we can't miss it. So it's important to remember that the Torah is the Bible's foundation. It is the rock. The Old Testament existed before the New Testament was canonized, and even in, in, in circulation. It was all Jesus and the disciples had, and they believed fully that it was God-breathed and totally inspired, containing truth to lead an individual to salvation. We oftentimes think of John 3.16 or other verses like that, but they didn't have that. They believed it led, it had the power to bring somebody to salvation. We see that in the scriptures. People uh, that are called out that know God, follow God, and ultimately their faith is credited as righteousness. And the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't exist. So they believed that it had the power to bring salvation to God, to know God. 2 Peter 1.19 describes that to 21, and I'll read it for you right here. It says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture. The Torah, the whole thing. 66 books, we can look back at that. So the essence of Torah was not law, the essence was to reflect God's eternal standards of truth and love. It is God's eternal law made clear and applied to human life in this unjust world. So it is clear that no one, no one can live up to the standard Jesus taught perfectly. Yet we only recognize our grace when we realize how far short we fall from God's requirements. Relaxing the law produces the illusion of thinking we have attained righteousness by our self-effort, we would then cease to depend on God's grace in Jesus. And so many people do this, even those that sit in pews. So many people do this. It's like we, we say, yes, I'm bought by the blood of the Lamb, but then, oh, but my works, but my works, as if it, the works alone is what counts, as if that is what gives us merit. But Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. James 2.10 says, he who keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of all. That, can you imagine, without Jesus, that would be terrifying. Because every single one of us, I'm sorry to say, we're all lawbreakers. If you've kept it perfectly but broke one, you're a complete lawbreaker. And the wages of sin is death. That is what, we, um, that is what is owed to us. But Jesus intervenes with the blood on the cross and pays that debt. So even though we be a lawbreaker, we can be saved. We can be cleansed. So the Mosaic Covenant, so what do we do with all this? The Mosaic Covenant, it is distinct among covenants, and elements of it were conditional, 
just as others were eternal and unchanging. Ultimately, the Mosaic Covenant is Israel's national constitution. But there are two sides of the law. So it's not just the law. It's not just a Jewish thing or an Israel thing. There are two sides of the law. Those which are universal and those aspects given to the nation of Israel to set them apart. So the universal law and commandments, these are things of personal morality, ethics, related to humanity, man to man, and related between God and man. How do we know? Why don't we murder people? Because of the Torah. Why don't we steal? Why is that bad? Because of the Torah. We uphold, these are universal things. It's not, we don't just say, I'm saved by grace. Now I can go steal my neighbor's lawnmower. Now I don't like that guy. I think I'll kill him. You know? There are things, it's, this isn't just like, oh, grace, it covers a multitude of sins. You know, I can do anything I want now. So there's more to that. This is a universal law that is established. It's a, a line drawn. This is what God intends. But there was also laws and commandments that separated Israel from the nations. Civil or judicial laws. There were ritual laws, cleanliness, both in body and food. There were temple laws, religious system, the sacrificial system, Levitical laws, the expectations of priests, how they were to live. There were the Lord's appointed times, the feasts, the festivals, and the Sabbath. And all of this is important because it, it was to direct people to the holiness of God. It was direct people to the holiness of God, and in that, also foreshadowing Messiah and what was going to come. So, it's an amazing thing when we think about it. Prominent features of the Mosaic Covenant had the priesthood and a sacrificial system. And by the time we reach the New Testament period, it was one of transition. As such, we find Paul, as a faithful Jew, engaging in sacrifice to show loyalty to Israel and the Torah. Acts 21. And some people sometimes forget that. Paul went to the temple and gave sacrifices after Jesus. But he's being faithful. He's not giving them legalistically. He's giving them as a memorial, as obedience to his Jewish heritage and his calling. And he was also giving those sacrifices because other Jews were spreading the rumor that Paul is anti-law. Paul doesn't like the scriptures. He's inventing a new religion. So Paul was instructed, go up to the temple before everyone and fulfill your vow. Offer a sacrifice and they will see. And that worked for that time. So as a national constitution... The Mosaic Covenant is not now in effect. The main point being, the temple, which was so central to this covenant, was destroyed. So therefore, the original sacrificial dimension is impossible to fulfill. Also, the Aaronic identity of the priests. They were essential. The priests were essential in this constitution, and they can no longer be determined with certainty. And as a full constitutional system, especially in the dimensions of sacrifice and priesthood, we see the truth as recorded by the writer to the Hebrews in 8 and 9. In chapter 9, he states that in speaking of a new covenant, the prophet Jeremiah treats the old, the Mosaic, as near vanishing. Even then, it was growing old and passing away. But it is important to note, Jeremiah is not speaking of the Abrahamic covenant and its relation to Isaac and Jacob and Israel. That covenant is everlasting. So, Jesus is our priest and sacrifice in every sense that it is important. If we want to understand both those words, priest and sacrifice, we need to look at the Torah. What is this all about? In the Torah, he is our reality. He is the reality to which the shadows of the temple sacrificial system points. 
So we need to understand and appreciate both the temple and the sacrificial system. Why? Because it points to Jesus. It teaches us about sin. It teaches us about God's holiness and reconciling to God. Further, Torah applies God's principles to a people living in the Near East over 3,000 years ago. We've got to remember that. So for instance, one example. They were commanded to build a fence on their roofs because they used their flat roofs as living space. And this was to protect human life. How many people have fences on their rooftops? Oh, you're not doing what the command says. Look it, I'm just teasing you. Okay, so there was a purpose for that 3,000 years ago. We must see the principle of love and protection within the command. It was to preserve human life. So that is the spirit of the law, and we can see the applications for the law today. So it's not just because nobody built a fence on their top of their house, well, that disregard that. Well, no, you can see this, the spirit of the law in that, and the love and the preservation of humanity and what God is instructing in those commandments. So we need to look at the whole body of Scripture and see the value in every part. Not just a one testament Christian. I'm a New Testament Christian. No, be two testaments. The whole scripture. The Torah being a treasure, for it reflects the fabric of God and it points to the coming of the Messiah in an intimate way. All scripture builds off of this. It's like this momentum, the snowball effect. So, the purpose of the law. What is the purpose of the law? The law was never meant to save. That is incredibly clear. From Genesis, this isn't a New Testament concept. From Genesis to Revelation, the law is never meant to save. Sin is the transgression of the law. 1 John 3, 4. Paul's words, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Romans 4, 15. So all therefore, everyone stands guilty. The law was to reveal the need for a savior and discourage saved by works. Even for Christians, that, it's, like, it's, it's a very human thing. It's not just a Jewish thing. It's human. We want to like earn merit. That's why there's so many religions in the world. That's why people are like attracted to that ritualism. We even find that in the church. So this is a human condition. But the law condemns by way of revealing that it is impossible in our current condition as sinners to follow it perfectly. The law shows us that. It's like, all, it's like a flashing arrow. That way, that way, that way. It's, 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 you cannot fulfill the law perfectly and be saved perfectly through it because of our present condition. So the law was to establish a measure of obedience and righteousness. The law was established to set Israel apart from a pagan world. The law brought a form of fairer judgment and truth than what was currently around at the time. And in fact, Western civilization is built upon the Ten Commandments. The law brought the knowledge of the one true God to the world through Israel. And it was a gift, for it showed a loving God who wanted to give us a reality check so we could find and know him. Fulfilling the will of your beloved. This is not a legalistic, in a legalistic manner to earn merits of salvation. For good works is a good thing when they are being performed in their rightful way. James stated, faith without works is dead. Our works should demonstrate. Once we're a believer, our works should demonstrate where our heart already is not where we're trying to go. Psalm 19, 7 to 11 declares the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. So what is the New Testament's take on the law? I'll just cover a few things. The law is not evil, it is not bad, and it's not obsolete. We have to view it through a proper lens. First, John 1, 1, really, Jesus is the living Torah. 
He alone is the only one in all of history who has perfectly kept it. And if he's going to perfectly keep it, well, then there's value to it. If there was no value to it, he wouldn't have cared. But he is the living Torah. When we look at him, we see him perfectly keeping it and how to obey and follow God. In Matthew 5, 17 to 19, Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, not abolish. What is fulfill? To complete. There was nothing more to add to it. He is the completion. He, he fills it, but it's still there. He doesn't fill it and wreck it. It's still there. And he taught, Jesus taught that the Torah is God's word. He is not teaching the eternality of the temple system whose demise he predicted. But so far as the book of Moses reflects God's eternal law, they will never pass away. Until heaven and earth pass away is a way of saying until there is no human society or never. Hence, rather than relaxing the Torah, Jesus exposits it to show the heights and depths of God's requirements in deeds, attitudes, and love so that no man will hold himself as righteous in himself. Often misquoted is Romans 10.4, where, where it says, for Messiah is the end of the law. And people look at that and say, there's proof. He canceled it out. Wrong. The Greek word used there is telos, which means goal, not end like abolishing or destroying something. So Jesus is the goal of the law. He completes it. He's not destroying it. Jesus never hinted that the Torah in its role as a reflection of God's eternal standard of righteousness would be invalidated. Jesus' goal is and was not to do away with Israel's purpose as a nation, but to establish a worldwide spiritual kingdom. This is the Great Commission in Matthew 28. So Jesus called and challenged those around him to be better keepers of the law and not use it to burden, judge, or condemn others. James calls the law the law of liberty and the royal law. Paul calls the law a tutor to our salvation in Christ. And at the end of his life, Paul claims to have kept the law and the traditions of his forefathers. And he def Paul defended the law. He stated in Romans 3.2 that the law is a gift of God. And in Romans 3.7, it teaches that the law defines what sin is, while Romans 6, 1-2 says we are not to continue to sin. Now, Paul's often interpreted harsh words against the law weren't against the concept of the law or the purpose of the law. He has an issue. Jesus has an issue. Everybody has an issue when the law is used in a legalistic form where man is saying, if you do this, you will earn merits and you will get, go to heaven. So he, Paul has a, a problem with people abusing the law or people being legalistic about it. But he does not have a problem with the essence of why it exists and the purpose of what it is. And that goes right back to Moses. This is not a New Testament concept. Moses challenged the Israelites to not just count on physical circumcision of the flesh to benefit them spiritually, but to circumcise one's heart. Like that sounds so Pauline. It's not. It's Moses. Paul echoes that in Galatians. In fact, in Galatians, that was his revelation because he looked at Abraham and said, wow, Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness prior to his circumcision. Wow, what a revelation. And it was. Charles Spurgeon once said, it is right that we as Christians are not under the law, but are under grace, but the law is the road we walk upon. That's in a, in a right order. The law shows that we need to be saved. Once we're saved, the law is still there, but we're saved by grace. But we walk upon this road. So, 
our relationship to the law. So now, what is the relationship to the law, to all of this, in all of this, to us and our faith in Jesus? Listen to this. First, we no longer turn to the law seeking to find intrinsic righteousness by keeping it. To the whole legalistic preoccupation with the law, we have died in the Messiah. Paul gives the example of a woman whose spouse's death has freed her from a legal bondage of marriage. So we have died to the law, Romans 7, 4, in the sense that there is no longer a penalty to be paid or a legal bondage. Our primary focus now is on the power of the Spirit and His love working in a life lived according to the law of love. Paul may also be indicating here that we now relate to the Torah by applying it as fitting to the new covenant order and are not under the Mosaic covenant with its sacrifices as our primary covenant of relationship to God. That's a mouthful, but this is like the relationship. The law is directly involved in leading us to Christ as it reveals our sinful state and lets us know what God requires. Therefore, it has a purpose. It is cherished. Yet God maintains His holiness at all times. And God maintains His covenant, His holiness in His covenants. And the Mosaic is one of those, and it's connected to all the other covenants. It doesn't just stand alone. It doesn't, it doesn't. Because there are very clear components of the Mosaic covenant that are tied up to the Abrahamic covenant. What are they? Well, what was promised to Abraham? Your descendants will inherit this land. They will be enslaved and freed. Well, we see that in the Exodus. We see that in the land. After 400 years, what's a land? What's a nation? A nation is a people with language, geographical boundaries, and a unique culture. The Jews have Hebrew, the land is Israel, and the feasts that are connected to the Abrahamic promises are the centers of their unique cultural inheritance of promise and blessing still to this day. The feasts are still practiced to this day for thousands of years. And this reaches its climax in fulfillment with the Mosaic Covenant. The Hebrews go from a people to a nation through this baptism in the Red Sea, the physical salvation of the people by the sign of the blood upon the doorposts. And everything is connected to this. So law and grace are two in the same. We often separate them, but they're two in the same. They're a marriage, and a healthy understanding of both leads to a relationship with God. If you do not feel you need saving and you're perfect, you don't need God. The law reveals, I'm sorry, but you need saving. You're not perfect. This is how you should live. You remove that. You have complete chaos. And by the way, you won't find me as God. So I extend law because I love you and I have grace. And when you find me through the law, wow, that grace frees you from that wages of sin are death. Because that is what you deserve if you cannot keep the whole law. So it goes beyond this. So we do not fulfill Torah to gain merit before God, but as those who are led by the Spirit to do God's will in response to His grace. We are guided by the whole counsel of the Word of God. So in closing, the law was never intended to be a legalistic bondage. So when you think of law, don't just automatically think legalism. So many people do. It can become that. But it was never intended to be a legalistic bondage. It's a burden, especially for Israel. That's what Paul says. 
you know, at the Council of Jerusalem, why would we put this on the Gentiles? We can, it's hard for us to carry this burden. It was a burden. But they carried it so many times in history with honor, and many times they've dropped it. But God's going to write it on their hearts, and that's what we're going to talk about next week. So rather than seeing it as legalistic bondage, we, we can look at it as an act of love and calling, beckoning. And this transformed Israel, and it has impacted the church and the whole world. Through the midst of this covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the law given at Mount Sinai, we see a holy God protecting his interests, revealing himself to the world through a chosen nation, and showing the standard of righteousness that would forever change history. God is kadosh. God is holy in every way. And he spoke through Moses to change this people. He speaks to us to change us. He beckons us to worship him and obey him and circumcise our hearts as God followers. We all need it. Do you know God to truly be a holy God? We forget that so many times. Do you know God to be a holy God? Do you tremble in awe before him? Have you circumcised your heart for him? You can't follow him unless you do. You can make it appear or give the illusion that you're following him, but unless your heart is circumcised, I'm sorry, when you draw your last breath, it's not going to work out. Are you bought by the blood of the lamb? That pure spotless lamb sacrificed once and for all, during a Passover 2,000 years ago. And now this spotless lamb mediates on our behalf as our great high priest. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for who you are. We thank you and, oh Lord, we are so unworthy, but you have extended your hand to us. You have showed us how to be righteous by your law, but Lord, we fail over and over and over again. And your word tells us where our destination is as lawbreakers. But Lord, we praise you and we thank you. Even though we didn't deserve it, even though we got what we, we you could have given us what we deserved because we were lawbreakers, you sent your son because you would rather save us than watch us perish. But it is still our decision. Lord, you leave it up to us. We're not drones. You don't override us and turn us into robots and force us. You leave that to us. But we look at the law and we look that we can't keep it. And our only solution, the only solution, it isn't other religions, it isn't meditating here or there or believing in that or this. The only solution, you said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me, through Jesus. And that is the key. That is the solution. And once we have been brought close to you through this marriage, Lord, we can look at your word. We can look at your law. We can walk in grace. And you give us the strength to sanctify us, to make us to holy, to help us follow and walk in obedience and love people and do your works and do your deeds with joy in our hearts because they've been circumcised to you by your grace. And only that. May we not look and count on our own works and merit to matter, but look to you, the author and perfecter of life. 
and we praise your name and we thank you, Lord God. Amen. So next week, we will be uh, our final week. To wrap this up, we will look at the Davidic covenant and the new covenant. Okay, God bless and have a wonderful week.